Welcome back to Hit Subscribe, where we chat with key leaders in the e-commerce space to discuss the present and future state of commerce optimization. I'm your host, Katrina, content marketing strategist at Recharge. And on today's episode, we chat with David McQueen Johnston, head of e-commerce technology development over at Simprove. David started his career in e-commerce 25 years ago and has worked across a variety of places like Temper Sealy, The Body Shop, and Harrods, to name a few. Today, we get to chatting about what got him into e-commerce 25 years ago and how the landscape has changed since then, from getting his first 50 orders through an AOL landing page to today, where there's an app for everything. Before we dive in, just a last reminder that it's not too late to get your tickets for ChargeX, our annual conference happening in Washington, D.C. from April 26th through the 28th. Use CX25OFF at checkout to get 25% off, and we hope to see you there. Okay, let's get right into it. David, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. How is it going so far? It's pretty good. It's the last day of the month, and we're all sitting there watching the sales come in, and there's nothing like doing that when you're having a great sales month, and this month so far is a great sales month. But we've only got a couple of hours left because we only report sales until when they ship out the door. So uh, three more hours left. Awesome. Anything different that you guys did, a campaign or something that would make this such an awesome month? We've got a sale running at the moment, but uh, no, it's just a a gradual growth we've seen since early last year and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And, uh, you know, we have pivoted an awful lot over towards subscription orders in the last year and subscription orders have the joy of coming every single month. Yeah, we did talk about that also in the pre-call. You said that your subscriptions have kind of been a side effect of the pandemic, like the way that it's grown. Is that correct? Well, we started with subscriptions after the pandemic and we sort of changed the business model slightly. So now subscription, we're all about subscriptions. Yes, we sell one-off products and uh, our product is such that some customers like to buy it and try it. And the Mm. next challenge, I suppose, in our life is to take those one-off customers and make them into subscription customers because taking our product constantly is actually very good for you, we believe. And what exactly is your product for our listeners who don't know? So we market a water-based IBS uh, remedy. As a bottle, you take a small drink every morning before you eat anything else. So we take 70 mils in the UK and you take that every single day and the bacteria contained in our patented product passes into the gut and does lots of lovely things in the, in the gut to improve you and your health. I love the lovely things in the guts. That was a good little description for what your product does. (laughs) I've been curious. It sounds like you've been in this industry for a long time. You said that you started working online in in 1997, which is when my sister was born. And you've worked for a host of places, Body Chop, Temper Sealy, et cetera. How did you get started and involved in e-commerce and commerce? What inspired you to get into this space? So in the late 90s, I was working actually at Harrods in London, the big department store. And my role was really to take the mail order process. We used to publish four or five catalogs a year, and we would sell everything from a a golf tee for about a pound up to a £10,000 jacket. I worked to try and automate all of the processes. And the last project I did was to look at pushing Harrods online and Shortly after that, I left to move to a chocolate company called Thornton's, much like Seize Candy in the States. And we set up a mail order operation. And my first online experience actually was with AOL. And we used to sell 
it was very different then. You used to log on and you had a splash page, which you had to go through in order to do anything with AOL. But then they started monetizing it and they started selling product on there. We didn't think we'd sell anything. We so underestimated what we thought we would sell that I wasn't allowed to put AOL on a work computer. So I had to do it on my Interesting. Apple Color Classic, which I had at home. And that was the only way I could get access to it. So we put it live and I left work at about five o'clock, went home, logged straight on to see what happened. And I had 20 orders and I was amazed. I then had to print them off and fax them through to the call center so they could be processed because we didn't join anything up. And by the time I'd done that, I had another 20 orders. Uh, Day two, I came home to about 50 orders. And then I just said, I'm not having any more of this. And I took my computer, my personal computer into work, plugged it in, plugged it into the, the printer in the office and just started printing these orders. So it gave us confidence to start building our first website. And that was, we launched it in 97, as you say, but it was very different then. It was, uh, we launched mm-hmm. it, Field of Dreams is the great film. So you build it and you wait for them to come. And it took an age for people to start coming, but they came and they came in their volume. And that was, I guess, is that around the time that the internet and buying online was becoming popular? Is that why you started doing that route? One of the first promotions we did was a European-wide promotion, which was e-Christmas. And it was the first pan-European e-commerce operation. We didn't actually sell anything that year. I think we sold four, four boxes of chocolates, and most of those were to people involved in the project. But yes, it just started going. And as I said, people didn't understand it. There were sort of first footers, first adopters who started buying, but it was very early days. It was very exciting because you would we couldn't do what we do now, which was go and plug Recharge into our website. Recharge didn't exist. We had to design it and get it built by engineers from scratch and everything was bespoke. So we would come up with an idea and we would build it and we would see how it sold, but it was all up sort of in the, in the late nineties. Yes. Everything was, everything was embryonic. People were just starting to buy online. People were even trying to, they built their order online and then would phone us up to place the order because they didn't trust things. But the lovely thing is that then the dot com boom started and people started to realize what was happening. I mean, people still don't trust the internet these days. So I guess that hasn't changed that much. <laughs> No, but you know, literally people would not, well, they didn't think they should put their credit card number in in those days. And at least now we know that we can, there are secure ways out there of paying for things, even if it's PayPal or something. So yes, we've moved on a lot, but yes, it's, I suppose we've got different challenges now, but uh, back in those days, it was very different. Yeah. And I mean, you've seen that evolution from having to put it online for kind of that first time when everyone was really excited and it was this new thing. Till now, we've lived through things. I've lived through things, the pandemic, everything. Like, I'm curious, how has the landscape of e-commerce kind of evolved over the last 25 years to you? What kind of changes did you see? What were some of the biggest challenges? Um, a lot of the challenges we had then have been solved. Because as I said, we had to build, we had to design and build everything. We had to integrate back office systems to allow payments and fulfillment to happen, which we've now standardized things and APIs and things like that have come along and everything is much easier. It may be you've lost, we've lost a little bit of the creativity, but we're allowed to deliver something much faster. We're allowed to change much quicker because as I said, everything had to be hard coded to change things at the very start. Just the fact that now that we can plug apps into our websites to deliver functionality 
makes things much more attractive to the customer, but also for, I don't know, for the merchant that are selling. What do you mean by like lost creativity? In what sense? Because we were designing things back in the day and we, we, we saw something, we heard about something, then we went, went away and we sketched out what we want and we worked the process through. And we wrote the spec for the coders and then they would go and build it. And so to me, there's a little bit of creativity lost there because we now have these apps that we can plug into Shopify, especially, and we have to work the way the app works. We always want to work slightly differently, but most people will take that app and will use it. So there is always room for more creativity. And I know there's the bigger players are hard, are actually developing their own product, but the majority of people are taking standardized things and putting them together. Well, I suppose the mission is to get to become large enough that you can afford to have your own dev team and you can make things that are better. Hmm. No, that makes sense. Is that, would you say that that's been better or worse? Or I guess there might be pros and cons to both. I think it's made, it's, it's opened our, uh, the web up for e-commerce. It's opened the ability for every mom and pop shop to have their website and to suddenly someone who's a little mom and pop shop that suddenly has got something that everybody wants for their business to blossom. So to me, that's empowered us an awful lot of businesses, an awful lot of customers can get access to things. You know, earlier today, I was, before I started work, I was surfing on a site in Japan. Would we have thought about doing that 25 years ago? No, never. But there are sites in Japan that I can go on, I can find some of my passions, and I can buy those things, and I know they'll be here probably by Wednesday. So that's enabled us. It's made the world smaller. It's allowed us to do things. It's allowed us to learn from what's happening in other places around the world and, and bring that back and to make our businesses better. I love that. The world has gotten a bit smaller for everyone. I mean, I, that's definitely good for businesses and commerce and e-commerce because it makes it more convenient to sell. It makes it easier to sell. I mean, apart from the internet in general, is there anything else that you've kind of noticed? You mentioned APIs and apps. Are there any other technologies or even trends that you've witnessed and experienced over the years that you had to adapt to? And how did that go? Well, right at the start, you know, we would sell a product and customers were happy with seven to 10 days delivery time. You know, if you offer that now, people would just walk away. You know, we've become used to things arriving in the today, if we can, you know, we have, we're very last immediate. I do think that's going to change going forward because the cost of, of providing those services will probably mean people will need to charge for the faster things and people will realize they don't need that widget tomorrow. They can have it on Tuesday. Things that have changed and evolved for the better are the the way that we communicate with our customers, the fact that we have so many digital channels that we can identify attractive customer segments or cohorts, talk to those customers, educate them, convert them. It's no different to the long-term sales funnel that everyone's taught in business schools for decades. But now we have the tools to understand that we can spend our marketing dollars in a really, really targeted way, we can learn what individual promotional messages and visuals give, and then we can just evolve much faster and faster to really focus our spend in the best possible ways. Because I have yes. seen some terrible marketing programs in my career to the effect that it would be cheaper to fly the cus- a couple of customers to the Caribbean for a week's holiday than to buy their order. So things change, but the data helps us get closer and closer to what we do. 
That makes a lot of sense. Multi-channel marketing, that's all definitely becoming more popular these days. Where did you, out of curiosity, where did you learn to do all of these things? Did you go to school for this or is this are the things that you know kind of things you had to learn? Personally, I did it from the school from Hard Knocks uh, because you know a lot of these things, uh, email, paid search and things like that, were, were there right at the start. So you got involved and you did them. Am I a specialist marketer, digital marketeer? No. That's one of the fun things, which is I, I've gone along and the people have actually sort of got better and better and better and specialists are there. So it's improved. We have a performance marketing team and they are constantly reviewing how their campaigns are working. They're tailoring their campaigns to make sure that they get the best return on their investment. And those are the kinds of things that you know I've learned to work with the specialists out there. Yes, I, I have a fantastic knowledge across a broad scope of things, but if I can find someone who knows a topic better than me, you go and find them and you can work with them. And equally, I hopefully I can take some of my experience and coach that other people about how to do some of the harder things because there are rare there's rarely a situation that comes along that I haven't come across across time even if it's a customer service issue how can we solve a customer's problem to me everything's about sort of serving the customer in the best possible way making sure they're excited about their purchase because if they're excited about their purchase that's really the most valuable marketing we can do yeah that's great and i think i would be curious to hear what kind of advice would you give to somebody who doesn't necessarily have that team of the technology director and and all of their special marketing coordinators? Let's say mom and pop shop. What kind of advice would you give them? There's an awful lot of tools out there to help you learn how to use the digital channel, the digital marketing channels. All of the email providers have got great little knowledge schools that you can go and watch videos and go through courses and become or self-accredit yourself on how to best email marketing, how to Facebook marketing and things like that. Growth is about trial and error. You're going to get things wrong. You've got to accept that you've got, you will have your own equivalent of my Caribbean holiday. So if, if you know that you're where you want to be, you know that you've only got a certain amount of money to spend, you know what you've got the return is, you can very quickly, and the difference now to when I first started, when I first started, we would print a million copies of a catalog and post it around the UK. And then we spend all that money printing the catalog and we sent it out. And then we just held our breaths and waited for people to phone or send their mail order in before they could go online. Now you can see within an hour or so, as soon as Facebook puts your ad live and you can start to see what's happening, you can turn things off very quickly. So you can be much more focused than we ever could. Small businesses have got to do that. They've got to experiment. They've got to do things that they love because if they love something and you sort of the video selling channels and things that you can do on even YouTube and Facebook and TikTok. Why wouldn't you try it? Get your enthusiasm out about your product because that's the kind of thing you might do something that is actually very funny and people might pick up on, but it doesn't really matter as long as you've expressed your brand and those people then will come and buy from you and tell other people about them. And that's where sort of the viral marketing piece can work for every single mark for, for businesses of every single size. Do you see a lot of that even now in the bigger companies that you've worked with, this same mentality of like, you know, do whatever you love and what makes you excited? Or is it a lot more uh, rigid and structured now? The more, the more enlightened businesses will allow their marketing teams to stretch their legs. Yes, it's always going to be in the marketing, the brand guidelines, but why wouldn't you allow, uh, we've got, uh, we've had a, a 
a program recently called Lutopia, which talked, which was talking about, uh, you know, bowel habits and uh, going to the toilet. And we even created a range of fashion based on toilet roll, a toilet roll dress. So it's very out there. And (laughs) (laughs) some customers truly were amused by it and loved it. And that brought customers to us. So that's what I mean about you can stretch and those kinds of campaigns. They're out there on YouTube. So go and have a look at them. They're fantastic. But are they traditional marketing? Definitely not. Because if everything's traditional marketing, the world's pretty boring, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And I think a lot of the things that are viral right now and become viral are because they're creative. You haven't really seen those kinds of things before. So yeah, that's a really good point. I am intrigued to see this toilet roll dress that you're talking about, toilet paper roll dress. Were you in that ad? (laughs) I wasn't in that ad. So luckily it wouldn't fit me, but uh, yeah, I can send you that photograph. The whole campaign was fantastic. We did it for London Fashion Week, or the team did it for London Fashion Week. I had nothing to do with it. I just sat back in amazement and saw what the team were producing. But to your point, it's about the fun of the brand because I have worked for some really, really formal brands. At Harrods, it was the world's most formal place at the time you can imagine. You had to wear a dark suit. You had to wear a tie that wasn't this, that wasn't that. And now we can work in an environment where, as I said, some really fantastic creatives can go and create something that will tickle the excitement of a customer. And that's what we're about. We want customers to buy into our brand because it's fantastic. It does so much good. And the more that people can be aware of that, the better it's going to be. Yeah, it's certainly different between the dark suits at Harrods and the toilet paper roll dress here. That I can definitely see the variety of things that you've experienced. I'd be curious, you know, you've been here for so long. Have there been any really memorable experiences or milestones while you've been in e-commerce? You know, like what what really stood out to you, like getting your first 100 orders or maybe something that went terribly wrong? Let's hear about that too. So the, you know, I talked about my first orders coming in on on AOL. That was fantastic. I also, in my head, I've got the day that someone copied a product and forgot to put a price on them, and we sold uh, seventy five bottles of champagne in twenty minutes for nothing. That was quite a memorable <laughs> day. We got ourselves out of there quite easily. My first hundred thousand pound day. So that was twenty thousand orders when I was at the body shop. That was a fantastic day because. We did a promotion. We cleared some stock that we had in the warehouse, and it will always live with me, and it will always be fun. Uh, singles Day in China on Tmall with Tempasili, the first year that we actually got that reasonably good well, and suddenly you're caught up in this excitement of a, a really, really amazing sales event in China at a scale that none of us could ever imagine. Okay, our sales were quite small, but the overall thing I think back in those days, it was four or $5 billion in a day. Those are the kinds of things that, that are memorable. And as I said, right at the start now here at Simprove, each month, looking at the new custom account, looking at the sales number and comparing it to last year, and just seeing how the business is doing fantastically. And those are always going to be things that we enjoy. Well, that's awesome. Is this career the one that you wanted to pursue since the beginning? Like you went to school for... It sounds like something similar. Did you imagine that you'd be here today? No, I'm a college dropout. So um, (laughs) uh, much to my mother's uh, horror, I dropped out of college to go and run race cars for a living. So I would sort of do run race cars all around the world. I came to Daytona. I came to Miami. 
to run these sports cars there. And that I did that. I did that for three years and it was fantastic. It taught me an awful lot. It taught my brain how to handle problems and challenges. So that was my original mission. I was going to build race cars for a living. I went to Harrods as it was a safe place to go and get a job to earn some money because when the race team folded. But then I, I began to love retail. I began to love e-commerce. And to me, the two areas, motor racing and what I'm doing now are linked, as I said, because it my motor racing time, you had a problem and you had to think of a way around what you had in front of you to, to deliver something. And I constantly think about that. One of my favorite sayings to developers is, if you come to me and tell me you can't do something, then you're going to get a motor racing story to tell you about an example of how I was told we could do it and you can do it. And so I've actually done that four or five times, talked the engineers through a motor racing story about something completely different. They've gone away and come back an hour later and said, oh, I realized I can do it this way. Those are the kinds of things that make building and running an e-com operation fantastic. Okay, that's really cool. I had no idea about the race car thing. I also, my, a couple of friends from climbing told me that they do race cars, like race car driving. And one of them is a consultant, which I didn't even know you could have a consultant for race car driving. So that's really cool. And I, I love to see how the way that you thought about race car driving and building cars and whatnot was able to make its way into how you think about retail. That's really cool. And again, this is starting off at such a formal place like Harrods. I had to come up with those ideas because you know, when I first started in the mail order area there, they printed these catalogs. And if you ordered some towels and you ordered some cutlery, a little dispatch docket would be sent off to the tower department, another one to the cutlery department. They would pack the orders up and send them out. So you'd get two parcels delivering. So the first thing I did was bring all that together, put it into a warehouse for the first time, and just make things better. But each time, how could we cut, you know, 20 seconds off a picking time on an order? Because if we were packing 10,000 orders in a week, we need those, those little 10 seconds began to mount up. And that's all motor racing. To me, that's motor racing mentality. Other people out there will think, no, no, that's just normal. Again, I, I have to give it, I have to paint it in a direction. That's so cool. And I agree because, yeah, you want to get faster when you're racing cars. And that is just naturally the way that you're going to be thinking then because that's where your mind has been conditioned to go. So that's really cool. Did you continue racing and doing race car driving? It stays in my life all the way through. Okay, I don't do a lot of it now. I, I drove to Milan this week, last weekend with a friend in his Ferrari. And, you know, just because we'd been there 30 years ago, we wanted to do it again. And cars and motoring are always part of me. That's my out-of-work mind tool. It just gets my mind working in a different direction. Is that something that you would say is a good tip for somebody who's in the kind a similar field as you is like have that outside hobby or I don't know what are your thoughts on people who are very invested in what they do and maybe they're single-minded and thinking just about work like is that those those, those kind of people are fantastic and they drive their business and to them their business is almost their equivalent of what I've just described as my motor racing hobby I need both but I'm still thinking about work when I'm doing the other one again driving last weekend there was a problem I had the previous week and I was thinking it through and I got to the hotel and then wrote down my thoughts. We're always going to do that. You have to have different ways of yin and yang in your mind to try and make such intense work manageable going forward. So I'd never, never question someone who's, who's single-mindedly focused and works seven days a week on their company. But at some stage, they need to get to a point that they can uh, step back a little bit and then reward themselves from the work they've done. So the, having having a, a counter is always very useful. I love that. 
Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you you also brought up a point about thinking about how to shave off time off of like shipping and logistics and fulfillment. And that's definitely been something that has come up now with supply and demand issues, like shipping is a big thing, and even trying to be competitive in this e-commerce space against competitors. How can I get my product out faster, et cetera? What do you think are some of the biggest challenges today, like right now in this moment with the current economic landscape? It depends which vertical you're in. Okay, for fashion businesses, and I know in a lot of people I've spoken to recently, returns is still a horrible, horrible overhead. And so understanding how you can present your products to the customer so that the customer can choose the right size first time and not send it back. In general merchandise, how you can get that competitive advantage is really, really difficult. It's about getting it right every single time so the customer trusts you and they'll come back to you. And in the more sort of distinct verticals, maybe the vertical that we're in, Again, it's about understanding what's best for our customer and making sure that the customer gets their product. If you're taking it every morning, they can't be without. So in the UK at Christmas, we had a big logistics problem. How did we work that logistics problem through so that the customers were aware that we were trying to make sure they got their goods? It took a huge amount of effort for us to do what we had to do last Christmas, but we had to do it because the cost of recruiting a customer is so high. The cost of recruiting a customer who stays with you for multiple months is even more profound because that customer becomes more and more valuable to you as a business. So what did you guys do then in that case with that challenge of that? We basically went back to the data. We found the customers who were affected and I produced a list of all of the customers that were affected. We then did what normally is strange in an office, but it's quite normal, I suppose, in my life, which is we went around the team and said, right, please, can you come and phone some of these customers? We want to phone all of these customers explain what's happening and tell them what we're doing to resolve it for them and check they're okay. And I think out of, and it was multiple hundred customers, we had to phone one afternoon. The team got together, we outdialed everybody. We were using a nice, lovely Google sheet so we could record what the customers said. And we had some fantastic results. Most of them said, look, we know things are happening like this. It's fine. Okay. One or two were worried. So we found another channel uh, that we had stock in with a delivery method that we could get to some customers. And we sent that customers. It didn't matter what we had to do. We just had to make sure we tried to make as many people as possible happy. And I think if anyone of those hundreds of customers, if one or two cancelled, I'd be surprised because they knew that we were on top of it. We were trying to do it because we knew we know how important our product is to some customers. Is there a reason that you guys decided to go with the phone call route? Like, Do you think you would have received the same results if you had emailed them instead? Is, is there a reason behind that? We had an email ready as well. And whether we sent it or not, I can't remember. But it's just it's about going that extra mile for your customer and making your customer realize, to us, to me personally, it's making, making sure the customer knows how important they are to us. And if it took a phone call, it took a phone call because they didn't expect that phone call. And then, so that, again, we've gone that small distance beyond where we needed to go. We could have just sent an email out and just left it at that. But personally, I think talking to them, even for 30 seconds, would be great. And we also learned a huge amount. We learned why the customers mm. were buying the product. We even had customers who were buying it as, as gifts for somebody. So we had to make sure they got it there for Christmas. Intelligence like that is is wonderful. And if you feed it back into the team, the team know what's happening. But more than anything else, yeah, that helped, I hope, a little bit galvanize the team and understand 
to a better, even more, more profound degree, because we're really, really customer focused internally to, to understand how important our product is to that customer. And that gives us renewed energy for the next piece that we have to do. That makes a lot of sense. And I think also because just of the nature of your brand and your product, it is a very personal product for these people. Like this is something they have to go through and deal with. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that the phone calls were received so well because it's a very humanistic approach to customer service and customer experience. I don't think like you can really replace that with automations and chatbots and whatnot, even though it's more convenient, right? So that's really cool. In many ways, that problem wasn't ours. It was our, it was our couriers. But to the customer, it's our problem because they don't really care that there's a courier there. So we don't want anything to make the customer's impression of us bad. So we're always going to do that kind of thing. We're going to build processes and systems that track that kind of thing going forward. Because again, it might be one customer, not hundreds. It might be one customer who's not going to get their product. Why wouldn't we contact them and make them aware what we can, what we're going to do to make sure it happens? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you guys did the phone call. I've heard of other brands doing the phone calls to you and receiving good results with that. I'm, I feel like even though technology and e-commerce has evolved to a place where it's a lot about convenience and and whatnot, I think that those touch points of being able to talk to a real human and experience kind of a similar experience to what you might in like a store and talking to someone and getting advice on what you should buy and what kind of clothing suits you. I feel like that's not really replaceable. Would you say that, you know, even with the boom of e-commerce, that it will ever fully replace that retail experience? I think we've gone through the time where everyone thought retail was going to die. Now retail has got a, a huge position in, in the overall marketplace. Showrooms and, and sort of brands using show, a sort of retail as a showroom so that they can sell product somebody is probably going to grow but i don't think you're you're never going to replace that experience of going and trying on a piece of uh, a jumper or a dress or whatever you want to buy so there is always going to be a place but the fact that somebody right out in the woods somewhere can have a, uh, a satellite broadband connectivity and can buy that product for the first time almost takes us back to where where the us especially was back in the early 1900s, when Sears were sending their first catalogs out, this is about allowing people to order something that they would never ever be able to see. And in, in the 19, early 1900s, the Sears catalog was all across America, and people would order. Now, you know, people can log on from anywhere in in the world and see what's there and order it. And that's again, that's part of uh, how I think we're going to be much better going forward. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think you brought up a couple of points about you know, what's working now, we did see that we thought retail was going to die. And now you're kind of saying like, it's actually probably going to grow in a different way also, like that showroom experience. Is there any other prediction or insight from what you've experienced that you would see kind of playing out into the future of e-commerce over the next five, 10 years? Like, where do you see it going? It's difficult to see how it's going to, exactly how it's going to evolve. I think the principle, especially things like subscription of having your everyday essentials just delivered to you and making life simple, that kind of thing. I think there is a lot of ground to grow. And that's not just because we're on a recharge podcast. This, that I think is something that's going to be, uh, is, is actually going to be there. I think the ability to find ways of, of creating less products and sharing them around is possibly way something's going to go. Why wouldn't, you know, the fact that every, most houses will have some kind of device for mowing their lawn. 
why does every single house need something for mowing your lawn? Why can't you find a way of collectively having those tools that people can use? So I think there could be some other directions that people will go, oh, no, it's a bit wacky. I told you I was lateral earlier. But you know, what are the things that we that we can that we use on an everyday basis that we don't need to have stationary, whereas someone, you know, a mile away might need that product to do something for them. Let's try and make things a little bit more more open and sort of we shouldn't produce millions of something when we can actually share some things out. Sorry, that was very wacky, wasn't it? No, that wasn't wacky. That's like the pinnacle of sustainability, <laughs> like that movement. You know, less is more, and we don't want to create excess. And you're right. I don't think everybody needs a, a, something like a, a lawnmower if we can just share it with our neighbors. But I also think a lot of people have begun to isolate themselves, especially with the way that society and the world has moved forward. It's it is convenient to be by yourself and like in your home. So. I think there will need to be some kind of shifts in the mindset um, that people have with each other for that to to work. But I think that's a really cool idea. I suppose also I'm looking for the equivalent. When I was at Harrods back in the, in the 80s and 90s, we would publish our catalogs. They would go out to places like Japan. And our product was quite expensive, but the shipping charges were very, very heavy for those kind of people. And we discovered that people were, get, were actually getting together in groups and a group of women were getting together and looking at the catalog and they were placing one order for, for 10 or 15 people. And then they were sending the order into us. We would pack it and ship it. And then they would share it out. Those kinds of things brought people together. And well, what's the modern equivalent of that? Because it could be quite special. I totally do that because sometimes I want something and I don't want to pay for shipping and customs. That's like the, I forget what they call it, like the forbidden tax or the hidden tax of having to pay for shipping. And so Merchants build it into the price, so then it feels like you're saving money or you're not paying shipping, even though you are. <laughs> it's just a higher price product. But I do that too. I bulk order with my friends for things that I want, but it has really high shipping costs. Okay, so that's your Jay-Z versus my gray hair, so that's fine. You're already there. <laughs> I mean, we do that too with like, I don't know if you guys have, I'm sure you have Uber. You guys have Uber yeah. rides there? Yeah, so we, we are seeing that in some apps and delivery things like save on costs by splitting this delivery or with or ride with another person. So that's actually a really interesting concept. But yeah, cool. That is awesome. I feel like that's a great place to almost end off. I would like to ask a last question kind of more on a personal level, but I didn't know that you were a really cool race car driver and whatnot. But this question was, what sort of advice would you give to yourself like 10, 20 years ago, knowing what you know now? doesn't have to be about you first. I rarely race them. I used to build them. Uh, oh, sorry. I said to myself, do what you enjoy. You know, it's a life and what the, the decisions you make about work are not about the sort of the simple money things. They're about making sure that you work with a team of people. And at Simpro, we have a fantastic group of people. You work with a group of people doing something that gives you value. And if you do that, your heart will be full going forward. I love that. This was a lot more wholesome than I thought it was going to be. Not that I was expecting it to not be wholesome, but I love it. And I love that wacky side that you mentioned. It's not very wacky. It was cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. We want to thank David once more for joining us today. We loved hearing about everything from race cars to toilet paper dresses to marketing strategy. You can find his company, Simprove, over at simprove.com. And if you liked what you heard, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from 
And check us out at rechargepayments.com slash hit subscribe for our latest episodes. Thank you.